Welcome back to the 2014 Myth and Legend Awards. And now, to present the award for Best Film Adaptation of Existing Folklore, please welcome Academy Award winner Morgan Freeman and adolescent eye candy Megan Fox. It takes a lot of hard work, vision, and determination to take what is unseen and bring it to the big screen. Tonight's nominees have established a place in the imagination of everyone who has beheld them. Much like you in a bikini, Megan. <laughs> I'm an actress. And the nominees are... The Curious Case of Benjamin Bunyip. Tinker, Taylor, Totselworm, Spy. Bridge on the River Yokai. And finally, Mr. Smith goes to Washington and sees Bigfoot. And the mythy goes to... Things are really hard. Hold on. Usually that's what I say. No, I'm an actress. Tinker, Taylor, Totselworm, Spy. Um, I just wanted to thank everyone uh, involved in the uh, production of this movie. We all put so much of our heart and our soul into this. Uh, there was so much work to... Wait, what do you... What do you... No, no, no. My mother, uh, 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 John John Hazelnick, uh, I, I can't... That's it. Yep. That's how you do it. Boom. Hey, everybody. I'm David Flora. I'm David Stecco. And this is Blurry Photos. And. Oh, and. 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 We'd like for you. But we only said, we said our names. There's only two names to be said, right? Well, we said our names and the name of the podcast. So that's it for names, right? I guess we should just talk, right? Wrong. Wrong. For there is a third name. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mr. Kenneth Height. Hey. Welcome aboard, Ken. Thanks and welcome. for me back. Well, yeah, welcome back. We've, yeah. we've missed you, Ken. Well, you know oh, I've missed you, Dave. God, how we've missed you. <laughs> and also you, Dave. Oh, thanks. <laughs> thanks. I, well, we consider that to be a royal, Dave. Yeah, right, yeah. I've missed you. And then the best part is both Daves are like, oh, it's nice of him to mention the other day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's so nice to him. Yeah. <laughs> Even though he's not uh, his favorite Dave at all. <laughs> We actually had a discussion about that. I'm, yeah. I'm resigned to the fact. <laughs> I think that maybe instead of the miscrypted contest, we'll have the the the, the Dave off. Yeah. <laughs> Hasselhoff's gonna fucking win again, yeah. <laughs> bastard. That's right. Once more, it's down to Hasselhoff and Letterman. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. We, got, we don't even make it into the sweet sixteen of our own damn contest. No. <laughs> Yeah, we're we're happy to have uh, Ken back with us. Uh, he he was kind enough to to not be scared off uh, last time that yeah. we had him on. Uh, I think uh, I think we're in for a good one because this week we are going to be talking about the Cthulhu Mythos. Yes, indeed. That's a lot of consonants in a row. <laughs> Probably uh, too many, actually. If <laughs> if you get technical about it, but yeah. And now, uh, just just to to top of the world, this Ken. Yes. Possible pronunciations of Cthulhu. 
Okay. Uh, the one that we are using, Cthulhu, is yeah. sort of the standard. Uh, it's like sort of the Protestant version nice. of Cthulhu, okay, right? Good. So it's it's what the masses all like to say. Uh, <laughs> thanks to Chaosium having publicized that Cthulhu. Some guy in the mid fifties hammering a, a manuscript to the door of a publishing house, <laughs> and now we can say Cthulhu right. the way we want to. August Erlach nailed <laughs> nailed the the during a drunken spree. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed the manuscript to the outside of the others to the yeah. door of the publishing house. Uh, no, uh, Lovecraft, of course, uh, pronounced it, according to his letters, in two different ways. One was Tlulu, and the other uh, way that he pronounced it, according to a different letter, is Tlulu. Wow. Right? I heard the difference. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then, according to eyewitnesses... Uh, I, I believe it's either Robert Barlow or Donald Wandry, who are both uh, friends and uh, literary executors of his, heard him say, uh, <laughs> which I think he was probably impersonating a parakeet or something, and right. they got it wrong. Yeah, that is yeah, not the sound not of sound terror. Like, yeah, no. <laughs> and um, I believe that there's another sort of firsthand or, or sort of secondhand hadith of him just pronouncing it like normal people do, Cthulhu. So okay. uh, that's that's your uh, your Protestant chain back to first practices, which is uh, Cthulhu the way that we and uh, Chaosium and everyone else says it. Yeah. Um, cool. In uh, they, they, one of the great things that came about when I was working with uh, the Wildclaw Theater guys to do Shadow Over Innsmouth, the yeah. play, was that we had a, a dialect coach come in like you do for real mm-hmm. plays. And in addition to telling people how to talk like Massachusetts fishermen from the 1920s, he also had to work out how to make all the Lovecraft noises on stage so that actors could say them without, like, tearing their larynx out. <laughs> and he'd never heard any of these words before. He was like a real dialect coach. So oh, wow. he and I got to sort of collaborate on pronunciation. So the one we came up with for the stage play was Cthulhu. Nice. Real, real so quick. You, you kept real it. quick on it. Yeah. I like that. So Because you know, you're the dramaturge for this. Right, yeah. Which I honestly love that word. I think it's great. I think it's, it's the best title. And it's have. got kind of a Lovecraftian ring to it. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's go through real quick um, for those of you who were wondering what what we're going to talk about tonight. <laughs> what the f- it is you two are talking about? <laughs> what is this crap? Tonight we're gonna we're they gonna like be talking about uh, the life of H.P. Lovecraft, mm-hmm. the author. We're going to talk a little bit about, uh, I think, his style and, and influences, and then go into the world he created, this mythos that, that we have uh, uh, dipped our toe in, and uh, we'll talk about his influence and beyond. And uh, Ken is gracious enough to to be here with us uh, to talk about it because he is a uh, a very learned scholar on the matter. Yeah. Uh, Ken, can you tell us a little bit about uh, some of the books that you've written on on the subject and and so forth? Okay, um, I guess sort of the first one uh, to talk about would be Cthulhu One Hundred and One, which I wrote as very much a, a primer for people who. Uh, maybe have a friend who is into this and want to catch up on all the jokes, or they <laughs> feel like they should just be informed cultural citizens of the nerdosphere. Yeah. Um, or, you know, maybe you could give it to your loved ones to mm-hmm. explain what you're on about. Yeah. It also works as a gift item. Um, uh, not just for Christmas. It's an ideal Valentine's Day gift. <laughs> yeah, so. That's right. Yeah, Cthulhu 101 is is one thing that I did, something that is more of a lit crit thing, or, although not super that way, is my book, Tour to Lovecraft, which is a story-by-story story sort of discussion, not necessarily even an analysis, although I do some analysis, of each of Lovecraft's uh, solo works plus 
what the one collaboration that he did with E. Hoffman Price that is uh, sort of considered to be a Lovecraft solo work, even though obviously it's a collaboration. So it was like a like a science like a college science group collaboration where there's just like one guy not doing anything. Uh, it's more like where the, the 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 two guys have got. They said, "Let's do a thing." I've got the idea. Oh, okay. Yeah. Dot, and dot, so dot. Uh, Price yeah. was actually a, a a published pulp writer at the time, and he sent Lovecraft a, a story and Lovecraft just thought it wasn't very good. And so he tore it out and rewrote it. <laughs> so that's what we did with that. Right? His, his, uh, what are called his, his collaborations with the others, his ghostwriting. That was a lot more like, I don't know. What if there was like a mound? <laughs> and then he's yeah. like, ah, oh, the mound. Good, good title. And then that would be a Lovecraft story. I had this, uh, had this idea for mound. Mm-hmm. What do you got from that? <laughs> it's, it seems like, like uh, it seems like a bad book pitch scene, and, and then just some guys like, oh yeah, okay, okay, okay. okay. Ma- ma- yes, picture I'm seeing picture the mound. This, picture this yeah. this thing, this this uh, rounded hillock, <laughs> but it's convex. <laughs> oh, 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 mind blow! Here's a hundred thousand yeah. dollars. That's right. Quick, quick, quick! <laughs> Lockdown mound rights. <laughs> and then I uh, write the uh, Lovecraft at last. Or rather, I'm sorry, the Lost in Lovecraft column for uh, <laughs> Weird Tales. My editor was apparently a secret air supply fan. <laughs> and that is an examination of Lovecraft's uh, work through the sort of lens of his setting. So each piece is one Lovecraftian setting and then what that meant to Lovecraft or how he treated it. And those are ongoing as well, Weird Tales is ongoing, but Weird Tales has not been super ongoing recently. So hmm. who knows what's going on with that? It's one of the fates of Weird Tales to occasionally... Pass into crudescence. Yeah, because we're we're gonna come back around. You're gonna hear weird tales again when we get into his uh into life love the life of Lovecraft. Yeah. So and that, that's kind of fun that it is this this weird spectral publication that just fades in and fades out occasionally. Mm-hmm. It it just it's summoned when it's needed. Yes, and then it goes to sleep in its crib. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The um and then I've uh, also written a role playing game called Trail of Cthulhu, which is from Pograin Press. Uses the Gumshoe system. Uh, to adapt the old Chaosium game, Call of Cthulhu, to the gumshoe system. And so that's what Trail of Cthulhu does. And I've done a lot of uh, books for that. And some of those books have sort of uh, attempts to synthesize Lovecraft and make it uh, transparent and accessible to gamers as well as to mm-hmm. just general literary nerds. And so that's the one of the big sort of lobes of my Lovecraftian uh, bidness. Now, and if uh, as a listener, if you're curious about the the gaming implications, you should listen to Ken's podcast. Ken and Robin talk about stuff. Yeah, speaking of the gumshoe system, yeah. right? Yeah, right. Robin Law is the, the designer of the gumshoe system, and I have a podcast. Ken and Robin talk about stuff every Friday on your favorite podcast resource yep. place. <laughs> yep, it is. Or in- at Ken and Robin talk about stuff dot com. Yeah, it's nice. it's in all the places you'd expect it to be. Mm-hmm. That's that's convenient placement. It is. Well, that's uh, that's uh, what happens when you put Robin in charge of things. Just close your eyes and reach into the internet. Your mm-hmm. hand will fall directly upon <laughs> right. the podcast. In your grocer's frozen section. <laughs> you you also did a, a couple of uh, children's books, right? Yes, I've done three Lovecraftian children's books. Uh, Where the deep ones are, which is a mashup of Maurice Sendak and H. P. Lovecraft. Awesome. Uh, the Antarctic Express, which is uh, <laughs> yeah. my uh, uh, blending of At the Mountains of Madness, Lovecraft's stark tale of Antarctic horror and exploration with mm-hmm. the Polar Express. <laughs> so it's a Christmas story, good for all ages. And uh, Clifford the Big Red God, which is <laughs> a retelling of the Dunwich Horror, 
via Clifford. That's awesome. And I am uh, right. I've just written, and it is currently being illustrated, I believe, by Christina Rodriguez, who did uh, Antarctic Express. Uh, Good night, Azathoth. <laughs> <laughs> For all of your um, uh, first reader type needs. So oh man, that's so awesome. Yeah, if if your friends are about to have kids, just buy them those. And if you were about to have kids, buy them those. Buy them those. <laughs> um, Can we have a link on the website that just says buy them those? Buy them those. <laughs> and those buy are the those. things that we're pushing. <laughs> I'll put it on there. Uh, before we uh, jump into uh, the harbor here from the broken and, and barnacle encrusted wharf, um, <laughs> how, how is uh, the Nazi occult doing? I think it's doing all right. Um, I've, since Osprey is a real publisher, they don't send me uh, royalty statements except like every six months, I uh, think. <laughs> but the you know the first one I, I think I've earned out the advance already. So awesome! That's well, congratulations. Good news. Yeah, uh, well done. And uh, I I cross fingers that it will continue to go to, from strength to strength. I have signed a contract for another Osprey book, which I don't think that they've announced yet. But I can tell you that it will involve Cthulhu. Oh, Sweet, Mazel and tov. it will involve ideally me making the Osprey map. Uh, department wish they'd never heard of me. <laughs> That's awesome. If I can get the raid on Innsmouth done in, in classic Osprey raid map style, that will be my victory in this book. You so. you actually have a degree in cartology, don't you? Uh, I do. I have a bachelor's degree in cartography. Cartography. Which, uh, makes me competent to uh, draw the sketch map from which they're going to have to do all the hard work. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> it makes me know exactly what I'm doing. That's today. right. <laughs> yes. I know that this is not trivial. <laughs> That's awesome. I actually, uh, over Christmas, went to, I was in Colorado and uh, went to my favorite hobby shop that has a very large Osprey press section, and I got to get really snotty with them about it. Mm-hmm. I was like, excuse me, sir. <laughs> um, do you have Nazis in the occult? It's it's from Osprey, and I see that you have some Osprey books here. And the, that poor bastard didn't have it. Oh. Oh, he I paid you the had price. His job. Yeah, he paid yeah. the price. Yeah, okay, good. Yeah, I asked him to check in the back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The yeah. worst yeah. price to pay. <laughs> there you go. I really took it to him. <laughs> the back's so, so spooky, though, sir. It's just, it's just sure boxes and just, boxes. Just go online. <laughs> so if you're listening there, yeah. anonymous game store clerk, while you raise prices on all the Games Workshop miniatures. Oh, yeah. He listens because at the very end, I hawked a loogie on one of our cards and just pasted it to him. Yeah. Said, sniff you later, jerk. And, and that you can't take off. Yeah. Because it violates the code. <laughs> so I'm sure he's a fan. He's a fan. Yeah. Well, he's a, he's a billboard. Yeah. More than a fan. <laughs> People come in, they see the card stuck to him. They're like, ah, is that a good podcast? He's like, you have no idea. <laughs> I think so. I have no idea. So let's start out uh, uh, this this voyage uh, by telling you a little bit about the man, H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah. Uh, Ken, can you give us a, a, a good old-fashioned history of, of the man himself? And, and Pop tell quiz, Ken. What does the H.P. stand for? Howard Phillips. Oh, shit. He's good. <laughs> <laughs> you know it. Back it's off, Jack. <laughs> My bad, my bad. I just, right. I had to be sure, Ken. I even know there's I had to only be sure. one Ellen Phillips. That's how good I am. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, um, yeah, H.P. Lovecraft uh, was born in 1890. He died in 1937. He wrote about 50 stories over the course of his life. Uh, of those 50, two of them are full-length novels. Another four or five are sort of uh, novelette or novella-length short stories. The rest are short stories. He is, I think, by universal acclamation, the second greatest horror writer in American history after Poe and certainly the most influential 
horror writer of the 20th century. You could actually argue that he's probably one of the most influential writers of any kind in the 20th century. If you look at the amount of impact that his work has had on popular culture, mm-hmm. even uh, not counting the adaptations of Lovecraft, which have been remarkably thin on the ground, but the amount of influence that his stuff has had. So, for example, when you look at a video game and you're going to go into a video game and you're going to fight some monster that is not a earthly monster, it's an unearthly monster, what does it have? Tentacles. Right. And that's because of Lovecraft, right? Lovecraft is the guy who changes the standard delimiter of uh, dangerous horror from hooves to tentacles. Before Lovecraft, it's all hooves. After Lovecraft, it's all tentacles. And I'll tell you what, that's one of the reasons I'm so excited to do this episode is because I don't think people realize the effect. There's, I mean, there's, there's plenty of people who don't, who aren't familiar with HP Lovecraft, who aren't familiar with Cthulhu, and they don't understand the impact it has on, on the movies they see, the books they read. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. that, that's why I'm so excited to, to do this, this episode, is because it has such a huge rippling effect over the, over the course of the century. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you, you put H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, Owen Wister, the guy who invents the, uh, the modern cowboy gunfighter uh, in the novel The Virginian, and Dashiell Hammett, and maybe Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler get to share credit, right? But it's pretty much <laughs> Dash Hammett. Those three guys built every piece of popular culture in the 20th century and the 21st century. If you take those three guys out, we have nothing. We got, you know, you know, nurse romance novels, I think is pretty much all that's left. <laughs> and, uh, okay. <laughs> and, and Lovecraft of the three of them actually gets the least cred, right? Because yeah. the Western has, you know, got a, you know, yeah. academic pedigree as long as my arm. And uh, Raymond Chandler, at least, has been literature forever. Right. And Dashiell Hammett was lucky enough to be married to a communist, and so therefore he gets a certain amount of academic love. But Lovecraft, poor bastard, uh, published in pulp magazines his whole life. He never mm-hmm. got into hardcovers, uh, except for one really terrible edition of The Shadows Over Innsmouth, The Shadow Over Innsmouth, which was published by a friend of his in a crummy hardback. But basically, he you know dropped almost without a trace, literarily, and it has taken a lot longer for his reputation to come back. So it's it's nice to see his this sort of uh, resurgence of his cred. There's a Library of America edition of Lovecraft now, for example, and he's in the Penguin Classics. So yeah, he, he's he, canon, bitch. He got he got uh, for a writer. He really got the uh, impressionist artist treatment that in his in his own lifetime. He had a, a rough, a rough go of it. Yeah, a very like his his life was not easily lived. No, it was. I mean, a lot of the problems were either you know sort of made by him or right. made worse sure. by him because yeah, yeah, he had just... sort of a. He believed because he was brought up uh, in circumstances of some wealth. His grandfather had made a lot of money in land and in investments, and then one of the financial crises uh, in 1907, his grandfather died, and the financial crisis sort of wiped out their fortune. And so Lovecraft had to move from his grandfather's old mansion to, you know, a series of uh, smaller houses with his mom. His father uh, was in this at this point in the process of dying of syphilis and going crazy. His mother probably was not stable to begin with. That did not help. Right. And so it's not until his mother dies that Lovecraft really sort of comes out of his shell and begins to interact with other people through the medium of the amateur newspaper uh, yeah. uh, phenomenon. 
goes which to is the, sort of like the internet before there was an internet. So it's how nerds <laughs> argued with each other, <laughs> except they had to go down to the the printer and pay to have it put together. Yeah. So that that at least we kept, should reinstitute that. Yeah. yeah, no doubt. <laughs> if only. But yeah, that uh, genie is sadly out of the bottle. But Lovecraft <laughs> basically gets into the amateur press associations and makes pen pals, and at that point gets sort of the self confidence needed to start writing horror fiction. And he writes it and circulates it, and people are like, "Well, this is this is crazy and awful and degenerate." And he's like, "Aha!" And he writes a really great uh, piece very early on in his life called "In Defense of Dagon." His first mm-hmm. story was called Dagon. Actually, his first story was the tomb, but Dagon was the one that sort of really uh, tw- uh, twigged that response, and um, that sort of gets him up and off 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 his on his hind legs and and defending uh, horror literature and literature of the weird. He meets through the amateur press a woman named Sonia Green, mm-hmm. who is a, a widowed uh, Jewish uh, Ukrainian. Uh, Lovecraft, of course, a horrible anti-Semite. I was going to say, yeah! And um, <laughs> one who is not, I think, entirely sure what women are doing on the planet to begin with. Yeah. I don't think that he's a misogynist. Obviously, he gets along great with his aunts. He's very pleasant to all of his female uh, correspondents. He treats them exactly the same way in his letters that he does his male correspondence but i don't think that he's one of the marrying kind Um, right and so he does marry sonia green they move to new york and at this point lovecraft is going around looking for work and this is the the 1920s this is the boom Mm -hmm. this is the 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 jazz age where you know people are actually able to make money as writers there's more magazines and literary establishments i think than there ever had been the Holly Gully being done everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. The Charleston being done on a flagpole by Al Capone. Uh, and with even with with uh, Harry Houdini, like writing him letters of introduction. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, he can't get a job because he believes that as a gentleman, he can't engage in trade and he can't. He's above it. He's a, Well, he's not above it. It's just not his breeding and temperament, which is to say, yeah, he's above it. So he can't engage in trade. His wife, meanwhile, is sort of supporting him, uh, as all wives should. They're literary-minded husbands, I point out. Um, but her hat business is not uh, flourishing as as it might. Oh, no. The and haberdashery. Then, what, then what do you do? When the, her millinery goes out of business, she can either get a much better job in Ohio or stay in New York. And he's like, well, we can't move to Ohio. It's a howling desert. It's yeah. a barbarian wasteland. <laughs> well, well, it's Cleveland, right? Yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> there you much. go. It's pretty, it's Cleveland. And so, uh, but it, notice his, yeah, Cleveland, avant la lettre, but it's still Cleveland. His, uh, <laughs> his perspective though. Well, we can't move there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So one thing leads to another. She moves to Cleveland and starts supporting him remotely. The marriage probably by that time not super healthy yeah. comes apart. <laughs> he moves to smaller and smaller and more and more terrible uh, apartments in Brooklyn. He is introduced to the fact that his neighbors are not uh, people of impeccable Anglo-Saxon descent, yeah. which drives him almost berserk. If you read his yeah. his letters talking about the people he sees on the streets of New York, they are indistinguishable from the prose in his horror fiction. Yeah, He's talking about pithecanthropoid worm beings and things like that. And that's like, <laughs> these are the people he sees on the subway. This is not, yeah, you know, this is his neighbor. Yeah. Right. I called somebody that the other day. Yeah. So he, <laughs> he, he, um, uh, he, he can't stand Brooklyn, uh, and not for the same reason that most people can. And then, uh, an he, age before hipsters. Yes. What his, was it like when his, um, uh, when his marriage finally does collapse, 
he moves back to Providence, Rhode Island, and basically stays there uh, to live with his aunt for the rest of his life. And he had, I mean, he had opportunities. He was offered the uh, editorship of Weird Tales. Yes, exactly. He would uh, have to have moved, moved to, to Chicago. Chicago. Yeah. Which he, uh, again, Howling Wilderness, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> yeah. I, I just fairness, also a sore spot for him. Yeah. His cold sensitivity, which was pretty real, would have pretty much done him in. I think if he'd moved to Chicago, he would have moved back in, you know, the first April. Right. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I mean, I, I thought isn't, I mean, Brooklyn, that's not exactly warm. Yeah. But you've got the Atlantic, you've got the Gulf stream. The middle um, of the continent is much worse than the edge of the continent. All right. I've never been Climatically, there. Climatically. Uh, there. Chicago being a sore spot because that's where his uh, father uh, apparently in, in a hotel room had his uh, fit of madness begin. Mm. So, <laughs> so that probably didn't, didn't sit well with him as well. Uh, he he was and he was born in Providence, right? Yeah, Rhode he was Island. Born in Providence, Rhode Island. Um, so he's a he's a New Englandman. Yeah, he he <laughs> sees himself very much as uh, of the same stock as the you know original Anglo-Saxon settlers of America. Fresh he's off very the boat. much, you know, uh, Mayflower and yeah. et cetera. Although his ancestors came over a little later, he weirdly he deprecates the Puritans in everything that he writes. And he doesn't really identify with the sort of free-thinking Roger Williams tradition of Rhode Island. So he's sort of a, <laughs> a self-created New England in a, in a way, right? What, so what better for a writer? Like, yeah. yeah, this whole real world sucks, so I'm going to do whatever I feel like. Uh, for, for a long time, he would sign uh, letters, especially around July, with, um, uh, you know, long life and health to his majesty, George III. <laughs> Um, so he was an eccentric in a lot of ways, and some of it he's just putting it on because he's being a goof in his writing. But a lot of it is real, you know, just a belief that the 18th century in New England was the pinnacle of human existence, and he, Howard P. Lovecraft, should have got to live there by God <laughs> because he is suited to live there. He's a he's a writer, he's a poet, he's educated in the sense that he has read. All the classics he, of course, dropped out of high school famously because his mom was worried that he would meet other children and be taken from her. <laughs> yeah. And so she it took him out of school because of his uh, nervous disposition. And uh, so he never got into college, much less finished high school. But he considered himself to be uh, an educated uh, artiste, one of the one of the aristos who should be running things in a proper Georgian uh, setup. <laughs> he just missed the train by, by a but, few yeah, years. By a couple hundred years. Yeah. Uh, now he he got that education uh, from this library that uh, his grandfather had, uh, correct? And then he he would sneak up to the to the library and, and read all the books. Yeah, his his grandfather Whipple Phillips, who was a, a <laughs> well traveled um, uh, grandfather name. He was a well traveled man, Grandpa uh, Whipple. <laughs> he was a uh, a Freemason. Uh, he'd gone to Egypt. He'd gone to other you know places in Europe, and so he would bring back you know sort of souvenirs. And Lovecraft would get to hold like Roman coins and that sort of set him off. And uh, he, of course, had an enormous library that Lovecraft read pretty much starting from infancy. I mean, he was he was precocious and he was a, a big reader. He'd, he'd read Plutarch by the time he was five. He was <laughs> he'd read the Arabian Nights uh, around then. That's when he declared that his true name was Abdul Alhazred and he'd go around with a towel wrapped around his head and <laughs> like that. So it was we all went that, through that darling phase. hijinks yeah. that you do. I had that tr- that trouble with that scimitar that one time. <laughs> yeah. uh, Abdul Alhazred, that comes in play later. Exactly. Yes. But um, uh, that's where it comes from is his, his old dress up name. That's awesome. That's, uh, that is that is uh, let me, way to go, man. Bring back your your old former uh, alter ego. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Well, being a kind of a, a closeted kid, like he and he and kept pretty much under lock and key by by his mother, he he wasn't the normalest looking person, right? Well, he was. I mean, he. He was told by his mother that he was hideous and that other children would <laughs> shun him. Right. And that's why he should stay away from them. He, you know, if you compare him to everyone else living in New England in the 1920s before you have dental anesthetic, sure. he doesn't look super creepy. I mean, yeah. we look at his face and think, oh, creepy, because we associate his face with magnificent mm. horror literature. It's the same way that if you look at a picture of Edgar Allan Poe, you're like, yeah. oh, he's creepy. Because you're imagining that he's in the depths of an opium bender writing about ravens tearing the heart out of a living man. When in fact, he just sort of looks like John Cusack. And there's nothing particularly creepy about that. But uh, Lovecraft, again, if you look at pictures of his face, he's got sort of a lantern jaw and a, and a big forehead. But again, if you go up to New England or you go to the part of England that his ancestors came from, everyone has a lantern jaw and a big forehead. It's just, <laughs> just the, part of the country. The way of the world, right? And uh, growing up in New England, he, he loved to write about, I mean... It, pretty much the epicenter of all this this mythos that we're getting into takes place there in Massachusetts, right? Yeah, that's one of the big uh, sort of revolutionary things that he does in horror. And people often talk about his other revolution in horror, which is to change the focus from supernatural horror to science fictional horror, right? That they're not magic monsters, they're alien monsters. Mm-hmm. That the horror doesn't come from Transylvania, it comes from outer space. And that's another Lovecraft, uh, not necessarily completely original, but he is the the seminal figure that makes that Copernican revolution. But the other thing that he does for horror that I don't think he gets as much credit for is he takes horror and puts it in his backyard. So when he's writing the stories that are set in Providence, they're sometimes on his block, right? Right. Yeah. He and, uses like his home address. Exactly. And- yeah. He uses his home address. He uses places that he's visited, places his friends live. He puts his friends into it sometimes in various <laughs> guises. And when he writes his stories about uh, Vermont, it's because he went up to Vermont on a travel lo- on a yeah. travel visit with Vermont area writers. And if you compare the letters that he wrote home about how great Vermont is to the <laughs> text of Whisper in Darkness, they're very, very close. It's just like <laughs> you cut out all the lines about how great everything is and you add one or two things about brooding presences and you've got, <laughs> you know, 10,000 words of Whisper all done. <laughs> and he, took, he, he has that amazing ability to take a landscape and an architecture and a history and a terrain and a culture that he loves, I think, more than he loves anything in the world, right? He Mm -hmm. went to Marblehead, Massachusetts uh, in, I think, 1923 for the first time or maybe 1921. It's the early 1920s. And he goes to Marblehead and he writes literally everyone he knows that he has never had an aesthetic experience the like of seeing Marblehead for the first time because it was really well-preserved colonial architecture. Mm. And the first instinct that he has once he goes to Marblehead is to write a horror story about an immortal worm cult that lives underneath Marblehead. Yeah. (laughs) And he makes it into his town of Kingsport. And it's that ability to take this thing that he loves and treat it as a source of unutterable terror that I think is the source of his, of a lot of his power. But just the notion that horror has an address that's new, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. Poe famously said horror is not of Germany. It is of the soul. Yeah. Right. And that's why all the post stories sort of take place in a nebulous nowhere land yeah. or in Paris or somewhere that, that doesn't exist. And <laughs> Lovecraft very much is about, no, the, the physical and cultural geography of a place has to feed into the horror, that that's the focus. And obviously M.R. James is doing that to some extent with his ghost stories. It's the fundamental thing about ghost stories. But Lovecraft 
pulls it out and makes it part of the whole horror narrative. And that's that's sort of a reflection of of, of him as a person. There's that that duality, that that feeling that he is this model New Englander that he that he embodies this this aesthetic of New England. But on the other hand, you know, his upbringing had a lot of trauma to it. It had a lot of darkness to it mm-hmm. while he was sort of living in this this idealized New England uh, lifestyle. And I think that he he then replays that over and over when he, especially when he sees a place uh, like Marblehead that, that fits that, that internal ideal of New England, I think that there's there's that part of him that's like, oh, this is perfect. But you know, f***ed up shit's happening here. <laughs> you know, like, I think that, that I think that's a very natural, like, within the way he defines himself. And didn't he, didn't he go out uh, when he was in Brooklyn? Didn't he go out looking for old uh, New York yeah. colonial When, when he first moved to New York, he thought it was going to be a great opportunity, not just, you know, financially. It's, it's the beginning of his marriage. He's very excited about things. He's writing... Happy letters to all of his friends about how great New York is. Hat shop's doing great. Hat shop's doing great. Everything's everything's coming up roses. I get to stay up no all night. No immigrants, everybody. Hang with my friends. <laughs> and my wife keeps pestering me for this sex I heard about. <laughs> uh, in her memoir of him, uh, she called him an adequately excellent lover. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that I should that I should get such high praise yes, at the end of uh, my life. <laughs> I've got adequately down. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, so anyway, um, yeah, he's he's very excited about New York as the sort of uh, it's kind of like a fairyland the way that he describes it in his letters. And then the first thing he does is he starts wandering around all over New York at night looking for colonial cemeteries and colonial buildings and colonial architecture, colonial streets, and discovers that there aren't a lot of them because yeah. New York is you know worth money, and so it <laughs> keeps getting repaved. And so I think that's part of what also gives him the sense that New York has been badly embalmed by someone who doesn't care and yeah. the parts that he likes are all rotting. And so you go back to, to Red Hook in Brooklyn where he was, oh. there was Dutch era architecture there, but it was unsalubrious to say the least. Yeah. I mean, it was not a good neighborhood when he lived there. Presence of the immigrants aside, it was you know also full of gangsters and problem children and right. the docks. And all of that stuff. Daniel so Day Lewis running amok. Daniel Day Lewis running amok, shouting at people. <laughs> Glass eyes flying everywhere. There's <laughs> uh, no place to be. And so, I, I think that that's another part of it. But if you look at uh, his story, he, which is sort of his uh, rejection letter to the city of New York, it's about a guy who finds the colonial heart of New York, and of course, at the colonial heart of New York is a horrible necromancer. <laughs> The titular he, um, and then that that's a that that sort of I think encapsulates Lovecraft's response to New York is even if he'd found what he wanted it was still right too much, and it, it, at the end of his uh, his short story the horror at Red Hook in which literally his neighbors are part of a ancient Middle Eastern black magic cult, um, his, uh, his his police detective. Are you sure this wasn't an op-ed letter he wrote it in? It may have begun as an op-ed. And then... <laughs> it grew legs. What can yeah, I say? What, what can you do? I'm creative. <laughs> and he uh, he goes back to um, uh, the detective after the horrors at Red Hook moves to Rhode Island. And so you can see Lovecraft sort of writing that as the happy ending. And then maybe that sticks in his head. He's like, I could move back to Rhode Island. <laughs> yeah. It worked for this guy. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it's just crazy enough to work. Yeah, his um uh, his his aunts were part of the the equation because his wife said, "Okay, we can move back to Rhode Island. I'll start my hat store in Providence." And his aunts were like, "Well, you can't have a store. Then you'd be engaged in trade." And 
we're Lovecrafts. We don't do that. <laughs> and so Good. she's like, you know what? The hell with your whole horrible right. family. Yeah. <laughs> How about I keep the money I'm earning? Yeah. And don't do that. Yeah. yeah. Now, we've brought up uh, Mr. Poe uh, quite a few times, who was a big influence on uh, Lovecraft. Yeah. What are what are some of the other uh, influences that he had that influenced the writing and the creation of this mythos? Well, I think one, the, one, the, the, one of the earliest ones with Poe is uh, Lord Dunsany, who is mm-hmm. an uh, Anglo-Irish uh, short story writer primarily. He also wrote plays and novels and everything else because he was a... He, he had, I think, the third oldest peerage in the British Isles. He was on like the 17th Lord wow. Dunsany, some un, un, uh, immense uh, long line of, of family money and wealth. <laughs> and so he just, you know, sat around and made up silly stories about places that didn't <laughs> exist. But he is apparently the first person to write an imaginary mythology, hmm. right? With gods and uh, heroes and an imaginary geography and everything else. He's one of the first people to come up with all of that you know, just right off the bat and then use that in story after story after in connected stories as opposed to just one off in a novel and then you never hear about it again. Hmm. And that is where Lovecraft sort of gets that notion is from Dunsany. And he spends, you know, what, counting the stuff that he wrote like that before he ever read Dunsany, he spends probably six or seven years trying to write like Dunsany and discovering that with one or two exceptions, he doesn't have the stylistic chops to write that sort of, airy light, but still with that substrate of horror that Dunsany could do. Dunsany is very much like if Yates didn't really bother <laughs> and just, you know, if you look at like Yates's translations of the, of the, uh, Irish, uh, mythologies and Irish fairy tales, which I have, which you have, <laughs> um, Dunsany's sort of like that. He's got that sort of tone and lilt to it. And Lovecraft didn't have that. Lovecraft turns out to have his own style, obviously as, yeah. as he would, but his attempts to write like Dunsany, for the most part, not super successful, but they're super influential on, on what he's doing. And they are, at the very least, an antidote to his attempts to write like Poe, which <laughs> are, if anything, even less successful. Again, with exceptions as he gets better at better at writing. If you look at something like The Rats in the Walls, which is sort mm-hmm. of his mm-hmm. hail and farewell to Poe, mm-hmm. that's terrific. That's some of the best writing that, he's, that he does. His earlier stuff where he's writing like Poe, like The Hound... Or like uh, the outsider, which everyone but me loves, but they're wrong. Um, it's just, I just want to uh, repeat that you're wrong. You're wrong. It's it's uh, it, it's overwritten and over purple, and it's everything bad about Poe and and none of the what's good about Poe, which is of course you know sex. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's the great thing about Poe is that you always know what is burning its way through his frontal lobes when he's writing it. <laughs> yeah. And with Lovecraft, nothing is doing that. Lovecraft is not writing about fears that come. From within, and I think that's where a lot of people sort of, you know, they, they they see a dad who dies of syphilis, and they're like, okay, problem solved. Mm, this yeah. is just psychotherapy. It's like, no, first of all, that's not true of anybody, but it's really not true of Lovecraft. Lovecraft's fears come to him from outside, and it's his responses to those outside things that I think drive his, his stories. I think there's a there's an an additional believability to Lovecraft's writing in that there's the, there's a lack of heroism. On, on the part of a, of a lot of his 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 protagonists, there's that 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 subtle victimization that like again like the, like you said the horror is coming to them, mm-hmm. and uh, in some cases they're 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 drawn forward further into it by 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 powers inexplicable, mm-hmm. um, but but there's that that ability that cathartic ability for the reader to to really inhabit the protagonist to 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 be just as confused and terrified as the person these these things are happening to. Yeah, Lovecraft sort of 
introduces in a story that otherwise doesn't really work. That's one of his Poe attempts called The Lurking Fear. He introduces the research as exposition, yeah. right? So his character goes and he's like, well, there's bad cess happening here on the Martens family mansion. I'm going to research the Martenses. Mm-hmm. And as he does so, you, the reader, are reading what the nameless investigator is investigating. And you're discovering the fear at the same time he does. And that's a really powerful technique that he makes much more powerful in later stories. But it's that ability to be drawn in in exactly the same way that the main character is drawn in that I think really, really strengthens a lot of of Lovecraft's writing. And because Lovecraft is, you know, very much a believer that you want verisimilitude, you want everything to feel like it could have been found in your library. Yeah. yeah. Right. That that's that's part of it. Now, there are heroic Lovecraft characters. The notion that there's no heroes in Lovecraft is an oversimplification. That's what I'm really good at. There's Dr. Willett in The Case of Charles Dexter Ward. There's uh, the unnamed narrator in The Shunned House, Mm -hmm. who has uh, a grandfather named Whipple, who is um, uh, uh, badly uh, murdered (laughs) by the monster in The the Shunned House. Then he comes back to life, and he's murdered again. (laughs) Who, 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 by syphilis, by, actually by his grandson, who pours uh, sulfuric acid into the um, uh, into the hole and and boils alive the the uh, werewolf vampire that has subsumed his grandfather's uh, personality <laughs> and soul. It's a it, it's not a great story, but it's really interesting and really strong in a lot of ways. And again, it's a real house in Providence you can look at. It. That's the Shunned House. That's where Lovecraft wrote that story. Shun, <laughs> uh, and. Uh, there's other, uh, uh, there's of course, Dr. Armitage in the Dunwich horror, yeah. who, mm-hmm. honest to God, armors up well, and goes out with his yeah. magic book and his magic powder and he is a genuine takes on the hero, Dunwich yeah. horror. He's, he's strong. So there are heroic characters, but there are certainly other characters who, like you say, are drawn inexplicably or just commit the Faustian sin of, gosh, I wonder what's going on <laughs> yeah. in that old yeah. place. Yeah. I was going to say that curiosity is a big motivator for, for a lot of these, but also what a weird like, book. I guess I'll read it out loud. <laughs> <laughs> like what you were saying, uh, um, there's the, the research that's happening. A lot of these people are very learned, either scientists yeah, right. or, or they, they know what they're doing and they want to find out more. Yeah. They, they just have to keep pressing on. Which again is a great identification with the reader because of course the reader also wants to know sure. what's going on. Right. That's why we're reading it. Lucky us. And our ghoulish curiosity to find out how is this guy <laughs> going to die horribly yeah. is now presented to us like in a mirror as the character's motivation. So it becomes instantly believable even if if you tried to summarize it and said, okay, my pen pal from Vermont says he's being attacked by crab monsters from Pluto, but he wants me to come visit him and bring all the evidence. <laughs> yeah. That sounds like a good plan. I'll do that. Right. Yeah. Um, you, you you summarize it like that. It makes no sense. But at the moment that you're reading it while you're inside the story, you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah I want to know what's going on. We got to figure this story. out. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I also think that there are certain characters that, that harken back to that 18th century notion that he was so fascinated with where it's like almost a stiff upper lip kind of thing. Like, well, I've, I've got to keep pressing on because it's the right thing to do. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's my heritage. I've, no no uh, uh, ancestor of mine would back down from this kind of thing. Yeah, you get that a little more in his great uh, pen pal and buddy, Robert E. Howard. Uh, that sort of, you know, I have to stick it out for the sake of my blood. Yeah. But with Lovecraft, you get uh, in, in, the, in the story of The Call of Cthulhu, obviously, he's kind of avenging the death of his uncle, mm. the, the main character, Francis Thurston, by investigating what caused it. And with something like Armitage, it is that straight up, 
you know, heroic. My job is to preserve knowledge. I'm a librarian. I exist <laughs> to keep civilization orderly and sensible and understandable. The soldiers on the vanguard. <laughs> right. Uh, Doctor Willett is a doctor, so the Hippocratic Oath maybe says he has to drive it out uh, with the uh, uh, the narrator of the thing on the doorstep. His best friend has gone into a bad thing, so it's just it's sort of like um, a weird. Uh, invert version of the old uh, when a man's partner is killed, you've got to do something about it type right. ethos yeah, 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 and thing yeah. in the doorstep. Yeah. So every every one of the characters, when you start digging into them, they have sort of a, a rational or at least understandable psychological motivation. And again, uh, in uh, in uh, At the Mountains of Madness, it's just pure scientific curiosity. Right. Yeah. What the hell's there in Antarctica? <laughs> just keep on oh, exploring. We've, we've drilled into these unknown creatures from a billion years ago. That sounds good. Let's yeah. go drill Let's for more. Yeah, yeah, keep keep trucking. Yeah. I got to read that uh, in Antarctica. Yeah, you and did. I was really excited about that. Mm-hmm. They give everybody a, a copy when you're running from the plane to the hangar yeah. or whatever. The, you, and, get, and, you get at the Mountains of Madness and who goes there on your um, uh, on your Kindle. And right after the plane leaves, you get to watch the thing. Yep. <laughs> the, the real version, yes, the John Carpenter. Oh, I thought you meant the Christian Nyby 1951. No, I didn't. Version with the James Arness as the carrot. No. Oh, I thought you meant the recent one that was just. <laughs> no. With Mary Elizabeth Winstead? No way, man. <laughs> yeah. I'm talking like the real one with the head that grows legs and runs across a <laughs> damn room. <laughs> That's American movie. <laughs> yes. And again, uh, there's no real evidence of it, but John W. Campbell, who wrote the original short story that became the thing, would have been one of the types of people who read everything in science fiction. Mm. At the Mountains of Madness is published in Astounding Stories, science fiction magazine, the one that he eventually would edit, in fact. And among the things that are in At the Mountains of Madness is a protean being, the Shoggoth, that can take Mm -hmm. any form, grow any appendage, Yep. And uh, still is lurking down there somewhere in a cave in Antarctica. And it also has the ability to not run afoul of copyright. Yes. <laughs> and uh, so Campbell would have been influenced by that. And certainly, obviously, John Carpenter is a Lovecraft fan. Yeah. As you can tell just by looking at his oeuvre in general <laughs> or in every interview, he talks about how much he loves Lovecraft. So. Mm-hmm. That's something, uh, mentioning copyright, is, isn't it true that Lovecraft encouraged people to uh, use his uh, mythos, the world that he created, or are, are are we jumping the gun on that a little bit? Should we save no, that? No, um, I I think that that's completely true. He begins by writing his stories, and even before he wrote the Call of Cthulhu, which is sort of the seminal ground zero story for the Cthulhu mythos, mm-hmm. obviously because it's where the word Cthulhu is introduced. He's got things that are showing up other places, like the Necronomicon, like Abdul Al Hazred, mm-hmm. like Arkham, like the Miskatonic. Uh, river, which is the river through Arkham, the town in Massachusetts that he invents and uses as sort of the heart of his little setting. And he encourages his friends to quote from the Necronomicon in their horror stories, because what he wants is for people who are reading weird tales before the internet to go, oh my God, these two, as far as I know, unrelated authors have both quoted from the Necronomicon. It must be a real book. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, you right? can you can build. Yeah, uh-huh. that that's and amazing. So, when he has Robert E. Howard drop mentions of the god, the black gods of Rolier into Worms of the Earth, people who are reading Weird Tales don't know that Robert E. Howard and H.P. Lovecraft are writing each other letters twice a week. <laughs> yeah. They're just like, holy crap, I recognize Rolier from Lovecraft. It must be real, right? Oh, yeah. And Lovecraft's notion, of course, is that he's trying to present, and it's part of his goal of verisimilitude, he wants his mythology to seem like a real mythology does, which means 
it has to come from more than one source. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that's why he wants Frank Bucknap Long to write Cthulhu Mythos stories. It's why he wants Robert Howard to write them. It's why he takes stuff from Clark Ashton Smith and puts them into the Cthulhu Mythos. Then Smith takes stuff from the Mythos and puts it into the Clark Ashton Smithos. That's uh, <laughs> why Robert, he uses Robert E. Howard's uh, Una, Una Spreckling and Coulton, and Robert E. Howard uses uh, his gods in various uh, Howardian short stories and horror stories. So he's trying to build the notion that as you're sitting there in 1930 reading a Weird Tales, you'll see these references coming at you from all kinds of different directions, and you'll believe that it's just a body of demon lore that you didn't know about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And again, this is 1930. This is not even 1980 when you could go down to Barnes & Noble and buy, you know, Black Magic 101 and the Satanic Bible and all this other stuff. This is a place where... H.P. Lovecraft, who lives at this time in New York City and has a lot of friends in publishing or in, you know, sort of the literary world, can't get a hold of A.E. Waite's Book of Black Magic and Pacts for, I think, three years he's trying to get a copy. Yeah. Right? They don't have the Amazon. They don't have the the ABE books. And so finally he gets one in, uh, like, 1926 or 1927 and immediately plagiarizes whole bits of it and puts the magic of it into Charles Dexter Ward because it's like, finally, I can stop just using the Encyclopedia Britannica <laughs> article on magic for all of my magic. It'll take us uh, two weeks to get here. Yeah. Well, ain't this just a geographical oddity? Two weeks from everywhere. <laughs> two weeks from everywhere. <laughs> but that's, but that's, uh, that's, it's such a, a fun thing that everyone's kind of work. They're helping each other by building. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and not, not like, oh, well, now my character has to walk through and do a cameo. Like not, not nothing so oblique as that. No, but, uh, but just that, although that, that's not what oblique means, but sure. <laughs> I don't know what words mean. <laughs> Damn it. Ken. <laughs> I'd like to point out that Ken is not wearing pants. <laughs> oh yeah. All right. Fine. We're going to go there. We're going to talk about what's going on in the real world. Dave, <laughs> Dave mesh shirt stacko. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's not sweat on his body either. (laughs) No, it is not. It's desire. It's rum (laughs) chata. (laughs) It's delicious. It's that all these people are building together. They're, they're, they're helping each other to build that this. And I think people are, you know, attracted to it. Like they are now like, Oh, this is, this is things that you shouldn't know about. This is, this is the really dark stuff. And having that, that hint of a, of a larger uh, world that these people, that all these writers are clearly privy to some dark secrets yeah. that, and that the more I read, the more I kind of glean of this world. Cause I'll never come across the, this Necronomicon, which is apparently fucking real. Yeah. You know, those right. that, that's brilliant. Yeah, no, it, it really was. And it, and it obviously it really, really worked. And there are still people now, although one hopes fewer <laughs> uh, who will go to their college library and try and get the Necronomicon out of the library to be told, one hopes with some degree of um, uh, theatrical shudders <laughs> that you can't get that book. <laughs> <laughs> no! But now there's like five or six different Necronomicons, so the yeah. author would say, the librarian would say, all right, you want the Simon Necronomicon, <laughs> the Decamp Necronomicon, which, which yeah. one do you want? Not nearly as fun. No. <laughs> Ruining everything. Uh, you can tell with the writing style how, how it evolved as he wrote, because that the first story, The Tomb, I mean... That one's just, it's all up in uh, Poe and some of the more classic, the very, it's a, it's a very Baroque style. He's just describing everything in, yeah. in, in long kind of breaths. A combination of Poe and about half the ghost stories he'd read by then, I think. Yeah. Yeah, he discovers 
the uh, British uh, writer Arthur Machen, fairly late in his uh, writing career, around 1927, and that just blows his mind. And you can see him, you know, he writes the Rats in the Walls very soon after that, and you can see him thinking, oh, man, why didn't I discover Machen when I wrote The Lurking Fear? <laughs> and The Rats in the Walls is like him rewriting The Lurking Fear, like, okay, this is how I would have written Lurking Fear if I weren't terrible. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's sort of one of his great Machen tributes. And, of course, The uh, the Dunwich Horror is his full-on Machen tribute. And so Machen is another one that he reads, and he sort of – and Machen has that same – notion of a mythology that's larger than the story that same notion of terroir because a lot of his stuff takes place in wales and uh, or in london and so lovecraft is is kind of reading a, a kindred spirit in a lot of ways hmm. with with Machen. and again Machen's london is not like lovecraft's providence Machen's london is the exotic london of uh robert louis stevenson mm-hmm. but it's it's london as baghdad it's not london as you know next door uh, if, if anything, you know, Bram Stoker's London is more of a real London than Machen's London. But the <laughs> but what Lovecraft does take from Machen is that sense of the landscape, that that natural horror. And I think that you can sort of see that really blossom out, not just in Dunwich Horror, but even in Whisper and Darkness and some of the other later stories that he reads after Machen. So if if you're looking for the the big influences on Lovecraft, it's it's Poe, it's Dunsany, and then Arthur Machen is like the 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 last really big one. Hmm. Now, for for those of you who maybe uh, haven't read uh, or come into contact with H.P. Lovecraft, and full disclosure, I don't even know if I'd heard the name Lovecraft before a couple of years ago, maybe even a year ago. I'm, I'm well, you did I'm, spend a lot of time in that North Korean prison. I yeah. did. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm not using it as an excuse. <laughs> no, but. you're a hero. <laughs> Although he totally could, guys. <laughs> what he did, what he suffered. I, I did it for, for our science. <laughs> I was curious for science. That's right. Um, it was drawn there by a letter from a guy who said he'd found crab creatures from Pluto. <laughs> <laughs> he said, well, sign me up. Why uh, did I bring all the proof with me? <laughs> but I, Rookie like, move. If only I'd read Lovecraft. I'd known better than that. <laughs> I, I don't know how much Lovecraft is on on the the libraries where you know I was I was uh, flitting around growing up, and and it's sad because like you said, there's so much influence that that this guy's had uh, on stuff, and it it's it's taken me this long to even uh, uh, get into it to to hear the name to to start like Cthulhu. What do you what do you what is that? And then people you know put their fingers up on their face and wiggle them, and 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 I'm like, that doesn't explain anything. <laughs> You're not helping. <laughs> I I I was actually probably a victim of 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 H.P. Lovecraft himself, uh, <laughs> literally, when I traveled oh. back in time. I remember um, I was in Swan Point Cemetery, and I tripped and fell. <laughs> Uh, Always blame Lovecraft. <laughs> that son of a bitch. Reaching up out of the grave like a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't even do anything. Just hand went right back. It was just to trip me. Yeah. Uh, I had a, a friend in, in uh, junior man. high. <laughs> I had a friend in junior high who had H.P. Uh, Lovecraft books. And and this is, you know, in the, the late 80s. And they they were those like super over the top covers, mm-hmm. you know, where it's just like a person like that's wrapped in webs and there's a thousand tarantulas c- climbing out of their mouths. And I was mm-hmm. like, no, no, I can't. Yeah. That's too much for me. I'm not good old Ballantine books. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and, and he, he was like, Oh, don't you got to read these? And I was like, no, no, <laughs> no, I'm not. I, I can't hit. That's like really dark stuff. I can't do that. And, and so it wasn't, uh, I think actually uh, Louisa May Alcott. Thank you very much. <laughs> Uh, I went back to the Babysitter's Club, and that was fine by me. It was great. 
Yeah, I think uh, At the Mountain's Mass was the first H.P. Lovecraft that I read. And because uh, someone was like, oh, you know, this book's you know set in Antarctica. You should read it. And it's in Antarctica. There's not a hell of a lot to do. So I was like, sure. Yeah. And it was it was fantastic. Of course it was. And, uh, and actually, the, the remainder of my, my H.P. Lovecraft knowledge is, is a direct result. Uh, full disclosure, <laughs> uh, as a gift that uh, Ken gave me, this great anthology of H.P. Uh, Lovecraft stories. It's the one that, that Joyce Carol Oates uh, edited a while back. And she did a hell of a job. I think so, yeah. And it, it was great. I, re- I read the entire thing. I, I absolutely loved it, and I even uh, lent it to Flora. So so by all means, like, you really should. And, and so many of them are short stories. You're not you're not committing to some gigantic project. Yeah, and even the novels are, you know, the, his longest novel is At the Mountains of Madness, and that's not, you know, anywhere close to, you know, 100,000 words. That's maybe fifty or 60,000. So yeah. it's not a long read. No, no, no. You can get right through it. Most of you jackasses have read Twilight, so for fuck's sake, you owe this yeah. to yourself. <laughs> sake is right uh you know in in another thing is that you there are also tons of audiobooks of of this stuff there too Mm -hmm. if if you're not of the uh using your eyes variety you can use your ears although it is funny because there's a uh, i did listen to one story from an english narrator i think it was shadow over innsmouth because they were trying to get the uh this old sea captain or or the you know this old fisherman and and it was just like all Texas accents. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So it was like anytime anybody spoke, it was like, well, yeah, we're going down to the wharf. <laughs> Yeehaw! Well, Captain Obed Marsh, what he found down there? Put your island some can of keys on I it. I looked back, he was gone. <laughs> well, I, I reckon that some of them dark rituals. That's right. Them fish frogs. You don't want to be around them fish frogs. You, no, but you said for for this play that you got, uh, right. there, there's yeah. uh, you you did some dramaturgy for that, in, including uh, dialect work. Yeah, the 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 job of the dramaturg is basically to be the voice of the author of the original source. So uh, Scott Barsati wrote the script. Uh, Shade Murray is the director. So I am basically representing Lovecraft. So I would my job would be. To, come in and say could you uh make this script uh more racist there's a few too many jews in this for my life that's right here's the problem with this <laughs> oh love crap yeah no he was uh a charmer but um <laughs> it actually was a charmer everyone who met him with one exception i think hart crane didn't like him but everyone who met him thought he was just the life of the party and terrific and, and huh. loved talking to him that said Yes, horrible racist. Anyway, the larger <laughs> point I'm making is that my job was to sort of make sure that the play, in addition to working as a play, worked as a Lovecraft adaptation. So looking at Lovecraft's larger themes and, and larger concerns and trying to at least to explain them to the to the actors and to, and to the people who would be involved in producing it, and also to uh, talk to the dialect guy about how to pronounce uh, uh, Cthulhu Fatagn and... Um, uh, Wagnagel, uh, Lourier, and things like that. Also, how to say Haba. Haba. No, his job was to, was to get Haba right. Haba. Make it not sound like it was all Pepperidge Farms commercials. I mean, just work it out, you know. Half fish man down by the Haba. Innsmouth remembers. <laughs> Lots of that. That would be a fucking great story to re- Innsmouth remembers. Yeah, the pecan sand is. Yeah, quite nice. Um, now, now, yeah, just to make this, yeah. I want to make this abundantly clear. If you live anywhere near Chicago, this is the part where you need to pick up a pen. Right, because you can go, if you are listening to this when it dropped, as you all do. Exactly. Uh, you can go to the Athenium Theater in Chicago and see The Shadow Over Innsmouth produced by Wild Claw Theater, 
Chicago's and the world's premier horror theater troupe. Nice. Uh, the stage adaptation of The Shadow of Rinsmith, written by Scott Barsati, playing through January 26th. So if you are, it's like this weekend and next weekend. Yeah, you got time. You got time, baby. Uh, Go out and see it. I'd, I'd be very much injured. I, I loved, uh, that That was one of my uh, top probably three stories that, I, that I've read yeah. of Lovecraft. Well, the, the adaptation is terrific. It uh, changes Robert Olmsted, uh, the uh, unnamed narrator of uh, Shadow, into Regina Olmsted. And Brittany Birch plays, ding, uh, ding, ding. plays her. So the notion of sort of a, uh, a, a, a person who is in a strange town, uh, menaced by everything, sort of goes up a couple of notches. Oh, Brittany yeah. is terrific. Uh, and <laughs> as I said, this is one of Lovecraft's most masculine and active uh, narrators, and so therefore, playing him as a girl is just about right. <laughs> so that's that's at the uh, the Athenaeum, you said exactly. Yeah. And yeah. Um, uh, what are the what are the days? Uh, it's I believe there shows uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, ending January twenty sixth mm-hmm. at uh, the Athenaeum Theater on uh, right practically right at Southport, almost. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and the shows are seven thirty, and then there's a, the Sunday matinee at three. At so three. So. Uh, go go check that out, Wild Claw uh, Theater Company, and and if you go to uh, wildclawtheater.com, you can uh, find out all that stuff, ticket info, all that, everything, everything you need to know. Uh, so sweet, you, and you know what? Um, we're not uh, we're not even yet really hip deep. Oh no! See, this is this is the same thing that happened last time we had Ken on. Last so, time we didn't even get to the war, and we say fuck that. Yeah, we're getting to the damned war. So congratulations, you're with your surprise two part episode, America. You just won a second part. <laughs> you son of a bitch. Oh. Uh, so we're we're I don't gonna know what to wear. <laughs> pants, some damn I guess. pants. Yeah, some, some damn something. pants. We're gonna be shirts. judging hard. Um, <laughs> Yeah, we're we're gonna come back uh, and and uh, delve into uh, the world that that Mr. Lovecraft created in a in a second part. Uh, so we're gonna we're gonna cut yeah. that episode here, uh, but you're not gonna get shorted on your 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 puns. No, for this. no, you will be haunted. In fact, <laughs> drawn inexorably towards them by a by a force you do not understand. <laughs> I'm still doing it for science. <laughs> science. Uh, yeah, in fact, we are going to launch straight into our, uh, section, which I have entitled, Oh God, the pun, Witch horror. Ooh. Jesus. Also, that's, that's my first salvo. Oh, oh, you're calling that? You're calling that 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 counts? All right. I like that. That was, was, I won't have two for the next episode. That was a blitzkrieg. Well done. All right. All right. All right. I can answer that with a, with an equally, um, powerful attack. Okay. <laughs> there was a uh, an adaptation of uh, an H.P. Lovecraft story that was made in the 80s where people travel uh, to of a remote Arctic area. There's a, a bunch of mountains, which they then proceed to totally shred with snowboards. <laughs> That's uh, at the Mountains of Radness. Oh. <laughs> snowboarding horror <laughs> of the mythos. They were both oh, rugose no. and tubular. Yeah. <laughs> I lost my boots. Oh. If you lose this, you got to make out with the Shaga. <laughs> Whoa. Oh, awesome. Ken, Ken, you got, you got a pun for us? Oh, dude, you just live in these. You've yeah, got 10 they, million I, of I, them. I, I uh, marinated them. Better, um, the better question is, can you pick one right can now? Can I pick one? Well, there's the standard, of course, that uh, the real reason 
that uh, uh, Professor Wilmarth went up to uh, Vermont mm-hmm. to meet his mysterious correspondent, bring all that evidence with him, is because he'd heard that uh, in Vermont there was nothing but fun guys from Yuggoth. <laughs> 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 it's an oldie, but still a timeless classic. <laughs> um, I've got a website uh, where you guys can go to watch all your shows and movies, anything Lovecraftian, uh-huh. anything that you want to see that has been uh, uh, on uh, a show or a movie, and is uh, HP Lovecraft. It's Cthulhu. Oh, Jesus. Uh, nice. Uh, All right, I get you. My buddy, uh, Will Heinmarch, actually did the, uh, the uh, a mock-up of that webpage. Oh, well, go to that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, see? <laughs> Link it from the show notes. You guys, uh, I know you guys were probably expecting like a home run, but I hope you guys like it, like a real solid bunt. <laughs> well, it's a sacrifice. Yeah. Um, I, this is actually on. something that, that uh, this is ripped from the headlines of my very life. <laughs> Um, I went uh, to grab some dinner on my way home from work at uh, Subway, and when I, I, I asked for a, uh, uh, a sandwich, they said that they they didn't have any. And that was the sandwich horror. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, when you what's say less, bunt, you yeah, are what, not seizing. What's less than a bunt? What's less than a bunt? <laughs> a pop, a pop-up fly, right? Did I just yeah. like stand yeah. at the plate and then just toddle over? <laughs> just yeah, that's right. You were you were hit by the ball. Yeah, yeah. yeah. got to take it's your base, ball. but not in a good way. All right. Well, while you guys go, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to try to come up with a bonus pun because that wasn't that doesn't that didn't carry enough weight. Yeah, I mean, it's odd that you talk about um uh, you know something from your real life because obviously when I was on my way over here, uh-huh. I went to that uh, that newsstand. You know the one that Lamont Cranston runs. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> I needed to catch up on on world and na- and national affairs. Uh-huh. But it turns out the 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 most popular news magazine for that purpose. He, he didn't have it. The shadow was out of time. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. Very. Who knows? See, it's not even fair because you just <laughs> yeah. have these. Yeah. Here I am making the sandwich. In, in fairness, they were a riot at Bishop McGinnis High School in 1984. So there you go. <laughs> that pun got me totally laid, dudes. Uh, just as a as, as a official warning, Lovecraft puns do not get you totally laid. <laughs> Maybe in this bold new universe. Yeah. Where, I don't know. Where girls are voluntarily at comic book conventions. But yeah. in my day... <laughs> In the blurry photos mythos. Now that nerds are normal. Yeah. Thanks. (laughs) Social change. (laughs) Don't do me any other favors. (laughs) I don't don't want to get uh, rude, uh, Ken, but but I need to hear from someone else now. Oh, my We've heard from you plenty. (laughs) Not really, but for the interest of getting us to listener mail. (laughs) Take a backseat, Ken. Don't oh. say anything for the next five, ten minutes. That's right. Oh, did you need to hear something, Ken? How about this listener mail sound? <laughs> yeah. You sit there. You think about what you've done. <laughs> uh, so thank you all for, for your awesome emails. Let's, uh, let's, let's dive right into it. Mm. And uh, first of all, I love you. I would like to call your attention to the head of the table where someone right now is clamoring for attention. I'd like to welcome you all to this fancy feast. 
Gray Cat's hitting us up. Top of the bag. Flora, what's he got for us? Uh, Gray Cat hits us with a wonderful pun and also a vote for your sex holiday. Oh, sweet. He says uh, he he said he really liked Lenny's Saturnalia. Yeah, Not I'm bad. really leaning towards that too. I like that a lot. I think that's uh, that's at least top three. And he's and he's mad that he didn't think of it. Uh, quite <laughs> frankly, it's so. always the sign of a good of, of a job well done. Yeah, and uh, way to man up and and admit to that. Mm-hmm. He said the best he could come up with was "You'll Ride." <laughs> I get it, which is not bad. And he also has one for when you're single around those uh, around that time of year called Winter Solostice. Oh, see, that's inclusion. It means, <laughs> hey, maybe you're not with anybody at the time, but you can still, you know, have a lot of fun that night. Yeah. Kick back. <laughs> see what I'm saying? You see where I'm getting with that, people? Order order a pizza. Yeah. Get yourself a six pack. And you know what? Go ahead and splurge on like one of those um those pay-per-view movies that just came out, like the six ninety nine ones, you oh, know? Oh wow. Yeah, like straight out of the theater is one of those. Yeah, get go ahead. You deserve it. It's a special sure. night. Or or just go and, and find uh one of the new releases from Walmart. Or, oh yeah. Or Best Buy. Or 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 you know, Redbox. They've got a lot of good options. Is that still around? Oh yeah. Wow. That's not going okay. anywhere. That's that's part of the new future. Anyways, Grey Cat has a pun, has a proper pun. Yeah, and you might recall that we were discussing discussing our discussions about puns, about whether or not they make it in or not. Congratulations, Grey Cat. You got one. yourself a discussion before we read this one. <laughs> this one made the cut, though. Uh, he has a feminine napkin. Feminine. P.S. Hate that phrase. Feminine napkin called the transparent paper gap. That promises no fem trails. Oh man! <laughs> Please address questions, comments, and concerns to Gray Cat at fancyfeast.org <laughs> slash net. Uh, awesome! Thank you for that uh, that fanciest of feasts. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's next? Oh well, I'd like to uh, continue the the screaming white hot all encompassing internet debate. About the photo <laughs> of the family on vacation. I, I mean, what what a perfect podcast to yeah. discuss a a photo mm-hmm. that there's something that called into question. Yep. So we got a uh, hit up wise. Fl- Flipper. Hey Flipper. Uh, uh, Flipper can fly through the air, jump through hoops, eat a herring, and also email us, uh, including a link. Uh, from the Daily Mail, which is not the most trustworthy source. I'm gonna I, tell you that. I don't know. I, I think a lot of a lot of shows that I listen to get a lot of their uh, info from the Daily Mail. Co.uk. I don't know if that well, means I, I tell you what, trustworthy. Well, you know what? To to our um, uh, British listeners out there, yeah, let us know what what's the what is your take on the Daily Mail? Yeah, is that legit or is that a rag? Uh, but anyway, Flipper says she's she found us an article. Okay. That says clearly it is a dolphin. So the jury's out. They're still going back and forth. The article's good because it has pictures of mm-hmm. um, what a what a small shark would look like and what a dolphin would look like. And the the argument is that there is no second dorsal fin, I think, or what is it, anterior fin yeah. on the on the bottom, something like that. But in in the waves, it does definitely look like there are no other fins present. Yeah. And the tail is turned yeah. um, a bit, which sharks can't do. It might go down as a mystery for the ages. 
this is it, it's shaping up to be. Couldn't it have just bitten a kid? Then we would know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, bitey bitey dolphin article. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, thank you for uh, for keeping us posted on this issue, Flipper, and and thank you for listening underwater through thousands and thousands of miles using your specialized acoustic sonar ears. <laughs> Watch out for those bloops. <laughs> what do we got next, Laura? Well, heard a couple of times here from Connor. Oh, yeah. Hey, Connor. Uh, <laughs> uh, Connor hits us with uh, some puns, but first, he, he's got some scathing commentary on the state Ooh, of America. Scathe us. He, he says, we don't need chemtrails to pacify the masses. We've got an app for that. Lots of them. Plus reality TV and texting, not to mention the legalization of pot in some states. That's true. We are we are a country hell-bent on anesthetizing ourselves. We I don't think you need to, to help that. No, not at all. And he he said he would send me to the penalty box for the mix-up of the element slash metal uh, with the aluminum, I think. Oh, yeah. Which I caught myself. Mm-hmm. But he, he said he... He liked the uh, the Alzheimer's gag that we that we pulled off, so so he's gonna give Redemption me a pass. Redemption through comedy. Yeah. <laughs> also, he's he's very concerned that that when you said uh, uh, actual Twilight, <laughs> the Twilight hat that that yeah. I had yeah. was actual Twilight. He's he's very concerned. Let me <laughs> let me just put it that way. Yeah, he is extraordinarily concerned and has whipped up a little just in case scenario. <laughs> But rest assured, it is uh, Legend of Zelda, which is, yeah. uh, I, I believe, allowed in in any place in, in the any world. place. Yeah, yeah. It, no, there is. We we only we only speak of Twilight in jest on this podcast, and hopefully not at all. Yeah. <laughs> uh, to his puns, he's got an iffy sounding metal band, kind of middle of the pack, not too great, not too sour. Yeah, the members of which are are large, homely looking men, and they're called the Midiogers. Oh, uh, so that was kind of a that was just like a that was like a pun unchained that was not necessarily a, attached to anything we've done just a right right freestyle v- word he's, jazz he's, yeah he's skittily bop bop deep dap dap he's not scat man all right so let's enter uh the the connor pun chamber because he's right. hitting us i mean we like, go. he's working the midsection hard rabbit is, punch rabbit punch this is like a gatling gun of slenderman puns oh yeah just like greg bach kind of hit us with oh yeah people are really into the slenderman puns they, so keep yeah. them coming he says he tries to be in the now blending in but standing out he's the pretenderman oh how about a specialist of bump? Oh no! How about a specialist of bumpers and guitars? The Fenderman. Oh, you can't just steal our pun. We had that. We covered both those bases. Come on, Connor. You're better than that. Now prove it. Criminal lawyer, Defenderman. In need of a Defenderman? Oh, Fenderman. <laughs> Who will pass the verdict? Judge Renderman. Oh. And before he forgets to remember, man. <laughs> Where does he get this stuff? We can call him the Mind Bender Man. Oh. Kaboom. It's a, it's a poem in and of itself. Well played, Connor. Thank you, Connor, as always. Next up, new to writing in, long new to the list, podcast. Long-time long listener, first-time caller? Some sort, sort of like that. Could be. Uh, but haven't heard from you before, so welcome, yeah. Caleb. Get it. Get over here, Caleb. Get, get I'm a hugger. Yeah. I'm going to hug you. He, right out of the gate, hits us with a pun. Nice. 
He says after the Illuminati's successful control of the sky with chemtrails, rumor has it they're branching out to intoxicate the ground with a line of chemical-spreading mollusks, chem snails. And we welcome you, Caleb. Truly, you are one one of us. One of us. (laughs) Awesome. The slowest uh, takeover of uh, the population ever. (laughs) Chem snails are awesome. Uh, Taper, uh, Taper wrote us in a real brief one. High five for the, for being immortalized <laughs> in a pun. Yep. That's a, that's, that's an achievement of some sort. Well played. Yeah. At least worth well at played least me. <laughs> <laughs> it's worth at least uh, 10 gamer points. I oh think. yeah. Yeah. And got a fun su- suggestion from uh, Godzilla. That's your Godzilla noise is is totally accurate, but it's like the last noise anyone thinks of <laughs> yeah. with Godzilla. <laughs> what I mean, I'm gonna have to layer it because it, cause it's Gothzilla. Oh yeah, so it, it would have to be like eh, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> eh, shut up, mom. It'd be like Morrissey because <laughs> it's goth, it's like Morrissey. I got, I got you. Gotcha. I'm going to leave that to you from now on. That was my one and only attempt to play on your playground. In it. Bow house. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. All right. So but, thank uh, you, Godzilla. Yeah, got it. Got a fun suggestion on on there. We'll we'll add it to the list. Uh, look into it. Uh, thank you guys for writing in as always. Thank all of you for writing in and continue to do so. I love that with the emails and the Facebooks and the Twitters. We all love it. And, even uh, Ken. Even Ken. Ken, get get back over here. Over Let's here. never fight again. Thank you, Ken, for uh, being with us and uh, uh, sticking around for another uh, hour. No, absolutely. Round Thanks a lot, guys. Round two. Uh, go to iTunes, subscribe to us, uh, rate us, star us, all that uh, good stuff. Uh, go to Stumble Upon. Don't go to Stumble Upon. Go to uh, <laughs> Facebook and Dave's YouTube. With himself. Yeah. <laughs> uh, blurry Photos Podcasting. Find us on there. Uh, blurry underscore photos at Twitter. And uh, uh, for Ken, uh, to find out more from him, you can uh, uh, go, like he said, um, to the Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff dot uh, com website uh, or on uh, iTunes. You can find that podcast on there. At Twitter, you can follow Ken at Kenneth Height. That's his handle on there. And uh, some of the some of the places if you want to look for for these books. In the meantime, uh, go to Osprey Publishing. That's that's a good place to find. Mm-hmm. Uh, a good book. place to find the Nazi occult. Certainly, the Nazi occult. You can go to what is it? AtomicOvermindStore dot com. Yes, Atomic Overmind Store. And then uh, I believe your children's books are at Atlas Games. Atlas is right? Games is who does the children's books. Uh, so check that stuff out. Support Ken. And once again, you've got uh, you've got four days. The Anathenaeum Theater. That's I right. That, Shadow right? over Innsmouth's yeah. global premiere here in Chicago. Boom. Heart of Lovecraftian horror in the Midwest. Awesome. Uh, so for this episode of Blurry Photos. I'm the oblique David Stecco. The oblique David Stecco. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Ken Thulu Height. Oh, nice. And I am David. <laughs> <laughs>
And the nominees are... As Swangs of New York. The Bashotted. Toy Alba Story. Gone with the wind to go. One flew over the Chanchan's nest. The Skunk Apes of Wrath. Verda Goatman. Who's Afraid of the Virginia Wolfman? Get busy hiding or get busy dying. Megan, I noticed you not done any movies with me yet. I don't think they let me do movies anymore. I'm an actress. I got something I'd wish you'd do more. What? Shut up. On my dick. <laughs>